Hey everybody, how's it going? This is your host, Michael Unterberg. See, I got my name that time. Here with my co-host, as always, Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? Uh, it's going pretty well. Except that we have no coffee. No coffee, and it's just the two of us. Just the two of us, sort of an intimate little discussion you get to hear. The teacher's room is a little <laughs> bit quieter today. Uh, we're not in a coffee shop or a restaurant. But, as you know, one of the missions of the Teacher's Lounge podcast is to keep you guys in touch with what's going on here in Israel with some insight behind the headlines. And so we wanted to bring up a couple of topics today. Really, what are the hot topics in Israel? If you open up an Israeli newspaper, which I hope you're doing, Times of Israel or Ynet or however you get your news, Jerusalem Post, Haaretz, whatever it is in English, um, what are the big headlines? What are they talking about on te- television discussion shows? What are they talking about on Israeli radio discussion shows? What's the, what are the hot topics now for Israelis? I would say that the changes in uh, the American administration and, and what's come of that is, I, I would say, a pretty big topic. So we'll, we want to address that today. And we also, uh, the sentencing this week of, uh, of an Israeli soldier is what we'll open up with. That's really the big topic right now today that everybody's uh, going on about. You Can you give some background into the, just some basic background into the story, Alan? So last year, um, I think this is a Purim, uh, El Ur Azaria, who was a sergeant in the IDF, um, was with his unit on duty in Hebron, and two Palestinians attacked soldiers um, with knives, uh, stabbing them. Um, both were neutralized. One was killed immediately. The other was uh, neutralized, uh, I believe shot, laying on the ground, but not dead. El Orazaria came after some time on the scene. He's a, he's a medic. And uh, seeing the terrorist laying on the ground, um, loaded his weapon and shot him and killed him. Um, he was then, uh, it was also filmed by B'Tselel, which is a Israeli human rights organization. Um, B'Tselem, sorry. B'Tselem. B'Tselel is, a, is an art school. <laughs> it's an art school. Um, sorry about that. Uh, B'Tselem, uh, B'Tselem is an... Is- oh, they could be. They're an art school. Maybe they're making movies around here. Exactly. And maybe that's what my mind was going to. But um, uh, good, thing we, good thing we do this in twos. <laughs> the, uh, so it was filmed and immediately went, went viral and was, it, it immediately created a, a huge, huge stir in Israel, controversy. Eventually, El Urazari was uh, arrested by the military court because he's a soldier, tried in military court, found guilty of manslaughter. And yesterday was the sentencing, which he got a, um, a year and a half for. Um, and it is, uh, there's been uh, protests on all sides. There's been nonstop around this case of discussion and um, at times very, uh, very, um, uh, maybe violence is a little bit too strong of a word, but very confrontational. Um, very fierce, very fierce expression of people's anger on the left saying he should have gotten a much longer sentence on the right saying he shouldn't have been sentenced for anything and, and he should be pardoned uh, immediately. Well, he he also, a, he should be given a medal by the yeah. many on the right. Go far enough to the right. But he also, by the way, in addition to the jail, I think he also got lowered in rank. Yeah. To a private from a sergeant to a private. Yeah. 
and uh, it's a very it, it, it's a very obviously anything that has to do with the army in Israel is very sensitive since um, it's you know a core institution in Israeli life and it's it's almost you know you could say the binding unifying institution for Israelis. Um, even with all the issues of those who do serve and don't serve, it's really still the over, overwhelming majority of uh, people are united through the IDF. So when Israelis argue about something that has to do with the army, that's a very visceral, painful argument in Israeli society. That's a particularly troublesome topic to have to get into a political disagreement over. And of course, because of the nature of this uh, of, of this issue and this. Um, Attack! It has become completely politicized. This whole issue um, for uh, right-wing politicians asking, demanding a pardon or support, and um, left-wing uh, accusing, you know, accusing uh, of of condoning murder, and uh, the politicians trying to negotiate, and the army, the heads of the army, coming under under attack for putting him on trial what, at all, not supporting the family, not supporting the soldier. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very... His family, after the trial, ex- after the sentencing, expressed anger that he, he had such a serious sentence. The Palestinians' family... Also, by the way, at the end, they started singing Hatikva. Yeah. His family and supporters, immediately at the end of the sentencing, started singing Hatikva. I mean, to me, here's what I wonder... Can you say that the fact that the political left is arguing and the political right are arguing shows you that the court actually did a really good job in finding something that wouldn't make anybody happy and that shows you that it was a, an excellent judicial judgment? Or is it that it didn't really matter what the court would do because this was the type of issue that Israeli politics has to respond to in their way? And whatever, if it was 10 years, it would have gotten the exact same result because everybody's in their corners and everybody has to snap into action based on their orientation. What do you think? Um, I, I, think I guess I think so. I mean, this was a particularly loaded, though. I mean, I, I think you're right, but it was really a loaded case for it because here you're dealing with a terrorist. A guy is a confirmed terrorist who got killed. He wasn't just, you know. By the way, I'm not sure. He stabbed a soldier. Yeah. So you're not sure what? I'm not sure definitionally. I would call him a guerrilla attacker or or uh, an insurgent. But if he's attacking soldiers, I don't know that that ta- – if, if, if the definition of terrorism is attacking civilians, then that's an insurgent, isn't it? Uh, okay, maybe. I don't know if I want to get into the discussion of uh, terrorists or not. But, again, he was clearly not an innocent guy walking no. by the street. Uh, some innocent guy who was walking down the street um, – which, which you know, that in itself would have caused controversy too. But here you have particularly someone who was a threat, um, and uh, you have a particular case of a soldier who was seen at, had been awarded um, exceptional um, awards for his service. So, like, it, it all comes down to, and the fact that the need for Israeli society to support its soldiers. Um, is a visceral need, I think, in many ways. Uh, it's true, but for an army to work, you also have to work within the rules. Uh, uh, you have to follow orders. You have to work within all rules and regulations, in particular rules of engagement. So you can debate as a society if those rules of engagement make sense or not. But he violated his orders. So, and that's, I think that that's what's happening. That, that, that is exactly the argument. If the rules of engagement uh, uh, are, are applicable, there are those who feel... 
and those are the most the, the loudest, the one who would support that anybody who is uh, violently attacking an Israeli, whether it be a soldier or not, to get away from our guys, deserves to die. It doesn't matter if they're laying on the ground and they're, you know, no longer their gun in their hand or their knife in their hand or whatever. Um, that, not an expert in international laws of warfare, but if he's, I, I can't imagine international law. Once you've, once he's been neutralized and he's on the floor and he's unarmed and he's not posing a threat, I don't think there's any, that's a prisoner of war or that's a, uh, an arrested criminal, however you want to define it, depending on the scenario. But I, I don't think there's any argument with. There's, I don't think there's any serious argument within Israeli legal thinking that would argue that you should be able to walk over and shoot him in the head. I mean, I would agree, but I think though um, that that is what's making a lot of people extremely, um, sorry, ex- extremely. Uh, um, sensitive to this issue because there is a strong voice in Israel, let's be honest, who are arguing exactly that, that they right. should be, that, that once you once you put yourself in that position, it's open game on you. And, I, and that is what's really creating the, the tension in Israeli society, I think. But I, but I would argue, and I'm, now I'm taking sides, I'm not just reporting, I'm, you know, I'm taking sides in the conversation and saying, you can't politicize this kind of conversation. This is, there is military jurisprudence that deals with these rules. And the army has to work according to them, and and you can't, you can't uh, romanticize or idealize or or allow your political conviction or or emotions to cloud issues like that. An army has to work. Well, to, you're, you're talking about the army as any society yeah. needs to have its rules clear and. And what do you think? There's, uh, and you, you're arguing that it should be in line with international standards. And, and I obviously, as you know me, we agree on that. I, as a father of a soldier now, uh, I want those standards to be enforced and, and to be very clear. And I want my son to know exactly what's expected of him. Okay. We, we very proudly, when we're in scenarios where we have to defend Israel, we very proudly say Israel follows rules and is the most moral army in the world. Of course you'll find people who did bad things, but then that, that's dealt with in a system that doesn't tolerate that kind of... It's not that Israel is less moral than other armies. It's, there is no other army as moral as Israel. I think there's that's not just a polemical statement to convince people. I think that's true, and I think of value. And part of the mission of the Jewish nation, the Jewish state, is to be the most ethical, moral, righteous, and just nation on earth. And I think that what's scary is that there is a loud voice who is pushing back on that. Yeah. Which is different than people saying, look, I, I feel bad for, how old is he? Is he 20? So he, he made a snap judgment in an emotional situation. It was, it was, it was not the right judgment. But you wouldn't want him, his life to be over because of it. You're talking about politicians representing Savior standing up and saying, not only should be pardoned, but he, he, he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, that, that I find... That I find Troublesome. I don't know how to defend that within a democratic state in a nation of laws. I'm not sure how that's. I understand the emotional side of that argument, even though I don't share that emotional reaction. I, I certainly think sympathy for this guy makes sense, but I don't see how, in a free nation state uh, that's a democracy ruled by law, that argument holds water. By our lead, by some of the leaders. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't yeah. think that's a valid. That's, a, that, that's what I think is part of what's been shaking a bit of Israeli society, is that you're not. Again, when you have a group, you have a few hundred people who support something that's 
you know, problematic like that, that's one thing. But it's not just that. It's really shook to the core of Israeli society and, and, and drawn almost like, a, I think, a line in the sand. I would argue that the modern world, what we call the Western world, democratic nation states uh, in the West, in Europe and, 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 and uh, America, is based on the Enlightenment ideas that religion isn't the guide of how we should run our nation states. We should have rational, in a, in a world where, where, we, where scientific outlook means determining facts that are provable or disprovable, let's agree upon the facts, the reality, and let's agree as a, create a system where we can create rules to live in that society in a productive way. And we will, through elected officials, decide what those rules are and move forward. And I would argue that anybody who lives in a Western nation state democracy lives a much better quality of life, and the world is much improved by that. To, to argue against that approach to running a nation state, to me, is saying, why don't we go back to pre-Renaissance, let's go back to the Middle Ages approach, where our passions and our assumptions guide us, not a reality-based, not a fact-based, not a rule-based society. And our privilege. The what? And our privilege guides us in the Middle Ages. It's privilege. Right. And so I, I, I find that very, very troubling, which was not meant, by the way, as a segue to our other topic. <laughs> about, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess that's why it was on my mind. Concerns about, um, well, in general, Israelis are interested in what's going on in America as America, but they're particularly interested in uh, what that has to, what that means uh, for Israel, and it, uh, and largely came to everyone's attention this past week when uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, went and visited with uh, President, Trump. President Trump and stood. Uh, they stood and they gave a press conference together, all sorts of interesting things. Israelis are very interested in the rise of anti-Semitism in the States and what that means. Uh, which, which has ex- exploded into the media. I mean, it, there has been a steady rise and discussion, but after... The press conference with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, then his the president's press conference on Thursday when uh, ultra orthodox um, reporter Jake Turks stood up and asked a question about anti-Semitism, which had a, a strange response, and then the um, the incident in St. Louis yesterday in the cemetery, um, and the the ongoing ongoing uh, bomb threats at the JCCs across America. It's, it's now become, at least in, in, in Israeli minds, it's, uh, news has become almost it's primary. It's one of the lead stories uh, in the morning news talk, uh, talk shows on, the ra- on television, on, on the radio talk shows, um, as well as the printed or so virtual printed press. I don't, know the, I don't know what the printed press the is. The digitally yeah. uh, appearing pixel press. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let, let, let's break this down into several issues. How about uh, uh, let's start with the uh, the BB visit and uh, the press conference where two state one state was uh, bandied about as uh, uh, how did you think President Trump and BB on that stage handled discussions of Israeli Palestinian issues? Well, first of all, what were the big news stories? Uh, what do you mean big news stories? Well, I would say the big news stories coming out of that conference was that. Oh was that Trump is no longer committed to a two-state solution. He says, two-state, one-state, I don't care whatever the Israelis and Palestinians want, it's fine with me as long as we can have a deal. And Bibi said, let's not get caught up in the terminology of two-state as long as we can agree that whatever solution we have has to be based on recognizing Israel as a Jewish state 
and Israel has to be in charge of its own security. So maybe we should back up all, all on that a little bit with right. that with BB. Uh, BB stressed that he's interested in content over labels. Yeah. I don't care what we call it. I want to talk about the content of it. Why was he saying that? It's clear that he was saying that because it was a hat tip to his right wing. Well, he also said, and I haven't changed saying this for the last eight years. Well, it's true that he did say those are necessary for peace the last eight years. But for the last eight years, he's been talking about a two-state solution. So right. he, so he's saying he hasn't changed, but he, he dropped the label. Right. So why did he drop that label? Why was he pushing back on that label? And it's clearly because, um, it, you know, in the last year and a half, is it now? I don't remember how long this government is. We change it so quickly. But um, with Israel's right-wing uh, slant to the government, that he, he is a right-wing coalition, um, as opposed to the last government. Everybody talks about Bibi being so right-wing. Well, the last coalition was a centrist was a centrist coalition. So, um, But especially with Naftali Bennett, before uh, Bibi going to uh, to America, Naftali Bennett, very, who was the head of the, um, the Jewish Home Party, which is a right-wing, generally associated with religious Zionism and settlements, um, very, very clearly in the all over the press, anywhere you could go, stated, "BB better not say two-state solution." Well, he said more. He said, "This is our opportunity to get it off the American agenda with the new president." And so BB left out the terminology, but went back to his first principles about what's necessary. And he all no, but he also I mean Bennett very clearly said he better not say it, or basically intimidating, he's going to bring down the government. Could he or could he not? Who knows? But Bibi was certainly conscious of that and wanted to keep out that fight because if he, you know, and it, and it was there was a clear pivot. The main thing is there's a clear pivot in that in that meeting between the two of them. How long that'll last? No one knows because we don't really know what the plan is. But the pivot is to a plan that 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 Bibi has been talking about for a number of years now, which is a, a regional. A regional plan, not just focused on the Palestinian-Israel issue, but the regional plan with all the other Arab, Sunni Arab countries, at least in more or less to the south of Israel, you could say, right? Egypt. But if they recognize Israel, because they're, they're strategic, there is a thawing of uh, relations between Saudi Arabia, Qatar, other Arab states towards Israel because they consider Israel an ally against Iran. If they could be... Uh, if it could be arranged that they would recognize the state of Israel, that would put the Palestinians in a situation where they would realize the Jewish state is here to stay, and that would better create a context for a peace deal. What do you think of the pre- and there was another pivot? There was another pivot that they were making, and that is, I think, what what is more important about what, what President Trump was saying, and also Bibi when he said, when he forget about the two state or one state direct negotiations. That is something that has fallen off the the plan because the Palestinians. Ha- this is where we've kind of fallen apart. Israel has been in, in, uh, insisting, particularly Netanyahu, on direct negotiations between the two. The Palestinians have been insisting more or less on third party, um, you know, uh, governance of some kind of solution, whether it be the UN, the European Union, America, whatever it is, always bouncing around to others because they feel that they'll be able to press Israel into giving up more. So therefore, that is a pivot, a total pivot to the Netanyahu position of of direct negotiations and a, and a broader regional uh, solution. So it was a clear pivot there. Um, well, because ironically, I would guess, and I don't know, obviously, but I would guess that Netanyahu thinks he can probably get a better deal under... Arab Sunni Arab state coercion than he could under European coercion to arrange the deal. I think he th- I think he might get a freer hand to making those arrangements. 
because I don't know that he thinks that Arab nation states are ideologically concerned with how it's resolved. They, they are not. Arab nation states, none of which are democracies, none of which have really any care about human rights or democratic values or Western values that we have, care almost exclusively about real politics. What is good for my my regime now and even short-term <laughs> regime? You know, what's so I, think, I think BV's semi-pivot is saying, yeah, I can get a good deal with them at the helm. I think that would work really well. What do you think of the president of the United States saying, I don't care if it's one state or two state? So I'm looking at two state and one state, and I like the one that both parties like. <laughs> I'm very happy with the one that both parties like. I can live with either one. Uh, I thought for a while the two-state looked like it may be the easier of the two. But honestly, if Bibi and if the Palestinians, if Israel and the Palestinians are, are happy, I'm happy with the one they like the best. So I think that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying it has to be negotiated between the two. It, it sounds smart. Right, sounds smart. Let the two sides battle it out. Let them. Let them. So why are so many Zionists concerned that he he's willing to consider a one state? Why do so many Zionists feel that the one state solution is such a disaster? Um, so even before going to the one state, I think one thing that has to be recognized here is something that you continually say, which is the Palestinians were invisible there. They almost didn't exist. To the fact, if you watch the press conference, he, he, he makes one reference to the Palestinian, the PA somewhat, and he just says Palestinians. He doesn't even mention uh, Muhammad Abbas, who's the head of the Palestinian Authority, or any other Palestinian. It's almost as if they don't exist. So that is a big problem because, well, I mean, uh, very nice for you to go say it, but that, that, who's saying the Palestinians take that into... Uh, well, but what he's saying is no deal. I, I will not accept any deal that they don't accept. So in a sense, he is, and he is, and, 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 and so, so I think that that's what goes back to your other question. I mean, again, then that that's sort of this this Netanyahu play, and what we often play with: who's the power in this in this um, you know in this relationship? Who's holding the power? You know, is it Israel? And that's what we talking about. Well, if you look at the small Palestinian, is it a Palestinian-Israel issue? Then you see that Israel's the power. If you look at it as a regional issue, well, that decreases Israel's power considerably. Uh, you know what I'm but I think so, what he's betting is that with new allegiances with Arab nation states, his power goes up because they'll back him in getting the Palestinians to accept something closer to what he wants than what they want, which is a much stronger – look, I would argue that I don't think Trump demonstrated a deep understanding of the complicated issues at work here. But I will say there is something positive, I think, in having a president of the United States say – I'm not telling them what to do. It's really up to the Israelis and Palestinians to work something out. I will be there to help them work it out and to try to facilitate that. Don't you think that's at least somewhat refreshing to hear after Kerry's berating us that I know what to do and you don't? So I agree with you. I agree with you for sure um, that a little bit of humility and someone backing off and saying, okay, let's let the parts work it out and decide uh, would be a – a nice breath of fresh air. I mean, By the way, that's what happens in Oslo. Oslo is back-channel, quiet thing, and they only bring in the United States as a gushpanka at the end. Explain what a gushpanka Oh, sorry, a stamp, a rubber, you know, a stamp. To say no, no, that's what happened in Camp there. David with Egypt. Yeah. So yeah. that started that. That yeah. wasn't America. Mm-hmm. I think that's always true, that when the, when the, when the uh, people involved initiate it, then the United States can be helpful. If the United States comes in and says, you have to do it our way, oh, you're not doing it our way? 
well, then we don't want to help anymore. And, and by the way, that's why every peace plan that, you know, since the beginning of the in, second intifada from 2000 on, every time there's like, oh, we're having a peace conference, Israelis just roll their eyes because we know that nothing's going to come out of it because, uh, because of that concept. Annapolis, Maryland with Cam- Condi Rice, uh, Hillary Clinton trying to arrange it, John Kerry trying to arrange it. You can't – it doesn't work. There's a, there's a hubris – and we, by the way, we have this. We blame Americans for things that go on in the Middle East that they couldn't create or prevent. We have this sense in the West that Europe and America control what goes on in the Middle East. They do not. They do not. They can be helpful. They can be harmful. And in many ways, incredibly helpful. And in many ways, incredibly harmful. But you, you can't take the inner dynamics away from the local people at play. I mean, if you go back, then when you sort of talk about, oh, that's the the initial problem of Sykes-Pico, the agreement a hundred years ago when they tried to divide the lines or make the decisions about the Middle East. But I want to go for a second. I would say it's post-neocolonialism of like, well, we'll come in and we'll save everybody without taking over because we're just trying to help. And we said that's that's the Iraq War. Yeah. We see where that landed. But so I want to go back to it's two also, things. So I want to talk about two things. It's not just the Bush administration that intervened too much. It's also the Obama administration fumbling everything. It's the same the what I call post neocolonialism of well, we'll figure it out, and if we can't do it our way, then we can't help you. So, I mean, but I want to go to two, to two things. One, I want to talk, talk about the Nikki Haley speech at the UN, which was just fabulous. When you feel, as an Israeli, as a Jew, you feel finally like someone's sticking up to the UN and saying, "What is this ridiculousness that you know that she got up there? You should go check it out on YouTube if you can." She's the new uh, American ambassador to the we'll UN. Pro- we'll provide a link, but but here you have the new ambassador to the UN, former governor of South Carolina, who got up and said, first of all, and people are ignoring this, she she got up and said, "I'm not used to dealing with this press corps, but I look forward to us learning to trust each other and work together." Yeah. What a menschlich way to. Wow, what a beautiful tone! Yeah. And then, and then, uh, and then she, and then she basically went and said, "This is ridiculous." I went to my first Security Council meeting, and so the first thing I want to do is talk about what we just um, saw in there. The Security Council just finished its regular monthly meeting on Middle East issues. It's the first meeting like that that I've attended, and I have to say, it was a bit strange. The Security Council is supposed to discuss how to maintain international peace and security. But at our meeting on the Middle East, the discussion was not about Hezbollah's illegal buildup of rockets in Lebanon. It was not about the money and weapons Iran provides to terrorists. It was not about how we defeat ISIS. It was not about how we hold Bashar al-Assad accountable for the slaughter of hundreds and thousands of civilians. No, instead the meeting focused on criticizing Israel the one true democracy in the Middle East. I am new around here, but I understand that's how the Council has operated month after month for decades. I'm here to say the United States will not turn a blind eye to this anymore. I am here to underscore the ironclad support of the United States for Israel. I'm here to emphasize the United States is determined to stand up to the UN's anti-Israel bias. So for as an Israeli and as a Jew, those two events back-to-back, the Trump, as we've been talking about, are, are not just a breath of fresh air. It's like it makes you want to stand up and sing Hatikva, like someone's listening. But I want to think about it for a second from the Palestinian side, right? And what are they hearing from all this? Um, and well, I, would just, I, I would say that the, the Republican Party should pay attention to somebody like Nikki Haley, 
as a future leader. They're looking for, with all the turmoil, because the party really lost control, you know, of all the people who were longstanding Republicans who ran in the primary for the last election and got driven out, and so they went with an outsider. I, I mean, it seems to me that the Republican Party's got to look at people like her, uh, a, a, a child of immigrants, a woman who's who speaks with, a con- I mean, whatever issues in South Carolina you could find. By the way, who got the uh, Confederate flag taken down? I mean, this is an impressive person who you should watch in the future, I think. Right. But how do the, you're, you're asking about how the Palestinians hear a statement like that? The, you know, well, I, well, first I, of all, I'm interested because we came up saying, well, it's Trump's statement sounds good. He's taking into consideration Palestinians when we say, like, okay, just let both sides work it out. But then his UN ambassador goes there and does this completely supportive uh, speech for Israel, which I'm totally in favor of, obviously. But as a Palestinian, you know, think this pivot. Is it a pivot towards let the two sides work it out, or I'm all on the Israel side? Well, I, I would argue that that you can't, uh, you know, if if a doctor doesn't give a correct diagnosis, then he can't have a good he can't prescribe a good course of action. And what what she did at the at the Security Council was say, this organization has lost its focus. the the uh, The original idea, as peace loving peoples who believe in democracy and human rights, that agenda has been co-opted by the 60% of planet Earth that don't believe in freedom or democracy. And that's not productive. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it like it is, and you're going to have to deal with me on those terms. I, I, it, the things that, that normally nobody says because you don't want to, because nobody wants to admit the smell in the elevator is what it is. And she's calling it what it is. It's hypocrisy and lies. And I, I can't imagine that telling the truth is going to be in any way harmful to coming up to a better process. So I so I think that again initially I think you're going to, that that when you look at the Palestinian science and the 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 fear on that side which is is prevalent about you know the Trump administration and this and that that it's pivoting away from them you know is clear I understand where it's coming from. Um, but I, and then that's sort of what you're getting at now. I think that you know Trump ran on a my new right favorite word disruptor really policy not for change he ran to be a disruptor. So it may be that a disruption well, like I, this... I, I don't think he just ran. He is a disruptor. Well, His philosophy a, seems to be of operation is to work very uh, in a very complicated, disruptive way to shake things up because he doesn't like... And uh, trusting his judgment that he will find... Once you disrupt and break things, I'll find the best path to getting the things that make sense. Right. So I think that that, you know, that uh, we don't know. We, we, we cannot... We can't predict the future. We're not prophets here, right? If you if you predicted if you could predict what's going to happen, you know, in the future because of all this, the only way theoretically, okay, well, what's happened before? Well, for the last work. eighty years, no, for the last eighty years, nothing. You know, it had the two state solution hasn't worked. Here well, comes in a disruptor. Well, we're Maybe. not prophets, but we were able to take educated guesses because we know how the system works. Well, right. once a disruptor steps in, then your right. ability to take educated guesses gets disrupted. Correct, and exactly it. So that so. You know, who knows? Maybe that is exactly what it needs. Nikki Haley walking in the U.N. and calling it like it is. That's a disruptor, right? Um, and may, maybe that's exactly what we do need to get the peace process back, you know, uh, onto a track that could potentially find a solution to this very big uh, issue and well, big I, problem that we have, Israel, I, Israel's problem. I will point out that, that the people that Trump has hired for his national security apparatus, his foreign policy apparatus, seem to be top-notch people overall. 
on the other hand, I agree. I agree. On the other hand, and this again could work to the benefit or not to the benefit. None of them have, you know, professional experience in diplomacy and. Or, or deep connections to Israel yeah. other than his in-house White House advisors, people like his son-in-law who went to through the, the Jewish UN day school system. Or is the UN ambassador he wants to, uh, sorry, the Israeli ambassador he wants to appoint. Right. Um, but again, well, so... But ambassadors are really not in the decision-making. Right. Who, who knows? Because he's his lawyer or something, isn't he? Or something? Um, whatever. Anyway, that, but, but, so, so this kind of disruption could actually be exactly what we need. On the other hand... It, that, and that's my question about the Palestinians. Is it what they need? They're getting a dose of, like, wake up, you know. Um, uh, you're not just going to – Israel's just not going to be pushed out of the settlements by a, a third party, which is up to now the track that they've been taking for the last number of years. The last UN Security Council vote, 2334, was basically trying to push Israel out of the settlements, you know, uh, some, or are they going to completely shut down? And and reverse as we saw what happens in 2000 when they feel like there's no process, it's not going forward, and and they you launch the second intifada. I don't know. I mean, well, I don't know. And then no, Israelis. We don't know. We don't know. Those are two distinct. Yeah, those are those, that's what's fascinating. That's what, in in a, in, a, in a world where the status quo has become an ossified, stagnant, never changing reality. Suddenly things are changing, and Israelis are raising eyebrows and saying, hmm, I wonder what that means. I wonder if that's good or bad. And uh, th- there's a lot of in- in- intriguing and, and, possibilities. Right. And usually most people fall down on their agenda. Meaning if you're on the left, let's, we'll be a little bit, uh, we'll be a little bit generaliza- generalized a bit here. If you're on the left, you see the sky is falling, right? And if you see on the right, you see that this is a great opportunity. Um, yeah, look, I I, I, I would I, I try not to be on the left or the right, and I definitely try not to see the sky falling. Um, so I, I don't I don't think look all the things that are troubling whatever side of the aisle you're on in terms of the inefficiencies and certain uh, I would say strange disruptions of the last month um, concerning not only rhetoric but also policies that are troubling for different reasons are causes for concern. But I think. The American system is seems to be working very well. Um, in in, I, I'm not a sky falling guy because I think the system will work. When I see the system breaking, then I get nervous. But as long as the system's working, I'm fine. The system's designed to keep things within a normal range of activity. Oh, yeah, but I'm so worried about the here in Israel. How you think it's that system, right? The system in Israel and that sort of delicate balance between uh, Israel, Palestinians, foreign. There is no balance. It's broken. There's no communication. There's no progress. You have two sides. Abbas cannot make a deal. Bibi cannot make a deal. Unless something from the outside changes, there's nothing inside that will lead to any progress. And people are frustrated with the status quo that is unsustainable. And, in fact, the two biggest changes that have happened in in our lifetime, let's say, um, were when uh, were, were were disruptions, right? Yeah. As you mentioned before, Camp David, when 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 Sadat comes to uh, turns to Israel, and by the way, that uh, right that happens after the Yom Kippur War, after a right wing government comes into Israel, um, but Sadat makes the decision to make that disruption. I get that point, even though we know there were other overtures at other times, but whatever. But the really major change, and in, 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 in a much, much bigger change, certainly vis-a-vis the Palestinians, we talk about 
the, the, the Oslo process that happens in the, in the early 90s really comes because of major disruption that happens in the geopolitical situation in the world, the fall of the Soviet Union um, and some other things. But that's the major, real major change. Um, uh, and so... I don't know. There's no way to know. There's certainly, we're certainly living in a time where things are changing. In terms of the anti-Semitism in the States... Do you have any uh, insight into that? And it's rise oh, back to that, right? Back to the anti-Semitism in the states. It, it's crazy. Well, it I mean, crazy. I, you you uh, tweet retweeted Mika Brzezinski's tweet the other day of it being, you know, whether it comes from the from the ultra left or the ultra right. You know, uh, anti-Semitism isn't isn't right. And that's why I talked with my class last night about this idea that, like, for quite a while now, we've been looking at anti-Semitism coming from the left and the Muslim world. We can't, you know, I say, it's been a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in the Muslim world from, from our Although friends. Although I don't think that's Egyptian. the root. I don't think that's the root of the, of the conflict over the last century. It has absolutely become a part of it. Yeah. And, you know, from Egyptian, you know, television, television station, all kinds of things. But, um, and now all of a sudden we you have... see it the, everywhere. Yeah, we have the, the re-explosion of... Of um, of anti-Semitism coming from nationalists uh, in Europe and America, in Europe and America, and that's uh, it's it just it's it's mind-boggling. I think it, we know. thought. I think a lot of us operated with the thought of, well, progress works, and so things have gotten better. You know, uh, there's less racism in society. Certainly, institutionally, it's broken down. Jim Crow's broken in the South of the United States, and we're going somewhere positive. And there's a sense of well, things are always getting better, and we'll always see things get better, without realizing that these underlying problems are there all along. And sometimes we'll rear their head again, perhaps in a march forward to eliminate them in another in another level. But there, these forces are always there, and now they're just sort of rearing their ugly head. Yeah, it, 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 I find it mind-boggling. But I found I found that Mika Brzezinski point very important. That the problems you're seeing, whether on the extreme right or the extreme left. Uh, anti-Semitism, I think, is a little bit of a canary in a coal mine. That when you see the Jews being attacked, it show it's a sign of some other deeper rot in the in, in, existing in the society. And if you don't address it, then your society's in big trouble. And and as we know, there's the extremes often link up. You know, it's a circle, right? Yeah. Extreme left often links up with the extreme right, whether it be in their concept of how society should be managed and dictatorial dictatorial or all kinds of different things which is yeah but eventually eventually uh it's the <coughs> it's the crazy loses and sanity wins one way or another so whatever changes we're going to into this century we're going to experience it's certainly a different century america's doesn't look like it's going to be the leader it was for the second half of the 20th century uh, the second half of the 20th century was a relatively quiet mild half century Standoff. Yeah, it was a stand I mean, I don't know. We have Vietnam, Korea. Uh, there were no world wars. There were no. There, you don't. You don't have any great land grabs. You don't have huge, huge wars on the scale that you could. It's. It's. But isn't that? Is there? Do you have these huge wars before the 20th century? Sure. I mean, huge. I, mean, well, I don't know. Napoleon. 30, 30 years. <laughs> Crimea. 30 years war. 30 years war, 100 years war. I mean, yeah, not to mention in other continents where you have so, – so it's relatively quiet. You have uh, technology improving quality of life. You have the economy improving quality of life. And now we're entering a slower economy. We're in, we're in for an interesting 
century, the 21st century. I, I don't know what it'll mean, but I do, I am, I am, while I'm bearish on some things, I'm very bullish on Israel. I think Israel has the opportunity to ride these waves and become a better country because of it if that's our goal and we keep our eye on the ball and try to make it that way. Is that, is that do you think, a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I was wondering. That's the booming optimism I was looking for. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, uh, I, I, I think that we are eventually, yes, towards that. The problem is, is I think the process is, is a painful one um, at times. Um, it is, but, I, but I, I'll give you an example of where you see green shoots, of, of things are going in the right direction. I pointed it to you earlier this week. Whoever the president is, whoever the prime minister is, it could be Reagan and Shamir, it could be Nixon and Golda, it could be Carter and, and, uh, and Begin, whoever. It could be Rabin and Clinton. Rabin and Clinton, or, well, they were really, yeah. Oh, Clinton loved Rabin. Whoever it is, it is normal for us to turn on our television sets and see the leader of the most powerful country in the world standing next to the elected leader of a free Jewish state, and behind them, the flags of their respective countries. That's an astonishing thing, that that's become normal over the last several decades. That is something that has not happened in the world. The leader of a free Jewish state and the leader of a major nation state a world power? power. When's the last time that happened? You can't say the exilar. Herod Herod was was a client state. So you can't... Herod was part of the Roman Empire. was not a free country. I'd say you have to go earlier than Herod. You'd have to go to the Maccabees. You'd have to go to Jonathan and Simon the Maccabees standing next to the Assyrian Greek kings after the war was over and they became part of their orbit of, of, of influence, but they were given full independence. And so that's, you're talking 2,200 years, practically. We're, we're living in an astonishing age for the Jewish people. And we can't lose sight of that and what that means for our future and, and why we should work for, but even be optimistic and expect. So I'll add to that and why you listening to this podcast need to be part of this mission wherever you are, and need to see yourselves as part of this mission. Wherever you are. Wherever you are. It doesn't matter if you're in El Salvador or in, uh, in New York or Melbourne or Paris. Right. You, you are part of this new mission of the Jewish people and what th- this new phase of the Jewish people's mission and growth. This renaissance as a listener should be something that inspires you to take part in and move forward. So with that, we sign off. Uh, thanks, Alan. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. And looking forward to a good, positive week so we have wonderful stories to talk about next time. Bye-bye. you have to ask yourself why why do why are Jews called Jews well the Chinese are called Chinese because they come from China the Japanese are called Japanese because they come from Japan well Jews are called Jews because they come from Judea this is our ancestral homeland Jews are, are not foreign colonialists in Judea